Our God and our Father, as we come to you through your Son, by your Spirit, we know that from you all good things come. You pour out on us the desire of grace and supplication. You deliver us as we draw close to you. You are the God who turns coldness of heart and wandering of mind into warmth and focus that you get, grant to us steadfastness of thought and kindled affections in this day. As we move through this morning, either this lecture or the service, may the faithful find salvation. May the careless be awakened. May the doubting find faith. May the anxious be encouraged. May the tempted find help and the sorrowful comfort. May the weary find rest and the strong be renewed. May the aged find consolation and the young be inspired. And therefore, send your Holy Spirit to attend your word, to attend your people, to attend this time with his power, his presence, and his work. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. We are taking a look at the ninth commandment. I don't know about you, but I have found that these commandments are like a two-edged sword. They swing one way and they cut. They swing another and they heal. It is also like the doctor's scalpel, a very sharp knife that is able to go between the sword, between the bone and the marrow, and it cuts deep. I have, in one sense, enjoyed studying and working on these, and in the other sense, I have not. Because every time you start looking, especially at the commandments, you have to look at yourself. And that's not always a pleasant look, no matter what some people say. There is a depth to our sin, and one of the things these commandments point out is the depth of our own sinfulness. We think... We have it all together, and we don't. And the commandments show us exactly why we don't have it together. And so it makes us examine ourselves. The other thing is, I find this with preaching. Every Sunday that I have to talk about a subject, that week the Lord brings it right into my mind and into my life. And gone. there's some subjects I don't want to talk about because, Lord, you're going to deal with that. <laughs> but it is the doctor's, the physician's scalpel that is at work. This is one of them. This is why I have continually said to you, when you look at these, you always look at them under the microscope and the rubric of grace. Because you understand as you see what the depth of these commandments say to you, how much you absolutely need the grace of God. And I've also said you have to remember two things. That you have to remember the rebirth by the Spirit That's foundational. That's the first act of, well, not the first act of grace, but his first act of his saving grace to you. 
that he took you from your sinfulness, transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, gave you new life. The old has passed away, the new has come. And the, the old passing away is more of a continuous, it's still there, it's still working, but it is losing its affection. The new comes little by little, and you realize how that just so that, that how that changes. You think you become a Christian, it's it's so beautiful and wonderful. This is it. Wow, my golly, good. And then you realize three days later, oh man, I'm still in some ways the same old person. My mouth is still a potty mouth. My heart is still not focused on Christ. But you see, that's the rebirth. At least you know that and you are recognizing that. It's grace. The second thing you need is what I call the empowerment of the Spirit. That is, if this is an act of grace, this is a action of grace. That the Spirit comes into you and in His power begins to work in you and gives you the ability to do what you, what you have been called to do here. This is your position. This is your practice. And this is what God does. And all of this is simply out of his grace. Remember, the Bible could have ended at Genesis 3.15, where they sinned, and God could have said, that's it. And you and I would not have been a twinkle in our mother's and father's eyes. We wouldn't even be around. But God in his grace has orchestrated all of history to the point where he has in your life, if you are a follower, brought you to this and wants you to live in this. I keep saying that because the scalpel is at work. And you have to remember that all of this is God at work out of his grace. So, do not lose heart, but at the same time, don't think, man, I've got it all together. I hate to tell you this, you don't even have it close to all together. <laughs> I mean, Amber and Sam think they're married. They're not married. <laughs> According to the law, they are, but they have no idea what marriage is all about. Let them live for 45, 50, 60 years in marriage, and then maybe they'll have a little twinkling of an idea of what it's like. So if you're listening to that, this is my advice to you, Amber and Sam. Okay, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Ninth Commandment, Deuteronomy 20, verse, uh, verse Deuteronomy 5, verse 20. You shall not bear false witness. And the New Testament application of that is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter. He has already talked about the unity of the body and what God has given for the growth of the body. He talks in 17 through 24 of the new life, no longer walk as the Gentiles. 
but indeed throw off the old clothing, be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you can put on the new clothing. And then he goes this way. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And this is the word of God. May the one who wrote it through the apostle Paul and Moses be the same one who instills it upon our heart. And you may be seated. Our working phrase, and and I I hope one of the things you notice as I read through there, how many of the commandments that Paul picks up and uses as he goes through here? He picks up a whole lot of them. You shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall... Indeed, he shall honor authority and all these. You just, he never mentions, well, this is, with, this is with the sixth commandment. But if you know your commandments, you just read it and you know exactly what it has to say. We've been working with a phrase that is uh, growing as we go through. In fact, we only have one more item to add to this phrase. That's next week. And then we're done with the Ten Commandments and everyone can go, Phew, that's over. <laughs> I can start to feel good about myself. <laughs> now, you ought to be like, one of the things I like to do in my daily devotions is read through and pray through the Ten Commandments. And then I am so sick of myself, I'm going, oh man, what's it like? But the other side is, we're going to go into a section on prayer. Not only what is prayer, but going through the Lord's Prayer. And my desire, Lord willing, is that by June 30th, we have finished the catechism. Applause, applause, applause. (laughs) You didn't have to do that. That was a joke. (laughs) But that we will finish it, and then come July, uh, there'll be others who will pick up... uh, issues that you need to to think about. So that's our plan. Lord willing, put that in there because it may not work that way for whatever reason. And I don't want to be a liar. And that Lord willing allows you to say something and get away with it. Well, obviously God didn't want that to be true. Uh, Lord's Day 43, question 112. Just one question with this day. What does the ninth commandment require? That I bear false witness against no one, twist no one's words, be no backbiter or slanderer, join in condemning no one unheard or rashly, but that on pain of God's heavy wrath I avoid all lying and deceit as the very works of the devil. 
and that in matters of judgment and justice and in all other affairs, I love, speak honestly, and confess the truth. Also, insofar as I can, defend and promote my neighbor's good name. And that's the catechism. That's basically the outline. So though you do not have a printed outline, we're going to go through this phrase by phrase and finish in half an hour. So you with me? You better be because we're going fast. <laughs> Portrait of God. The Portrait of God is a God who is truth, who is reality, and who has given us truth and reality. We see this in two places. One, Psalm 19, where he talks about the first part of that psalm, creation, all creation, exposes who God is, and we see him. It's a, that's one of the reasons we have a foundation for science. You know, if things weren't real or things weren't working truthfully, science would be obsolete. Who knows what may happen if I take this little steel ball and I drop it? Who knows if it's going to go down at the same speed every time I drop it? Physicists will tell you, yes, it will. Why? Because that's the reality God has set into the universe. It also talks about the Word, the Word that is pure and holy, and the Word that we are called to understand. And it is a Word that by He, he reveals Himself, the one who is real, and the truth. And he tells us what is real. Heaven is real, even though many people don't even want a heaven. Hell is real, even though many, even in the church, don't want a hell. He is real, even though the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Last month, we celebrated their holiday, April 1st. <laughs> That's an old joke, come on. <laughs> the whole idea is that God has shown himself, not only that he is truth in doctrinal form, but he is truth in the sense of he is real, his word is real, and it is something that grants to us an understanding of who he is and who we are. That's why looking at the commandments is so painful because they're real. We do them all the, or we fail to follow them all the time. And that points to us something about ourselves that we don't like because we like to think of ourselves as good people. No, there is no one who is good, not even one. That's part of the portrait. It's also the promise. It reminds us that God is a God of, who gives promises. And in giving his promises, these promises are real. They're true. Proverbs 35, 35 to 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Sounds very much like Revelation 22. Do not add to the words of this book, which may refer to at least the book of Revelation. But coming where it was, I have an idea. It refers to the whole Bible. Uh, don't add to it. Otherwise, you may be found a liar. Or I like the passage from J Joshua 23, 
the end of the conquest. They have gone into the center section. They went south. They went north. They defeated most of the tribes and at least enough so that the people of God could take over the country as it was allotted to them. And then Joshua basically says, okay, you have this piece of property. You deal with all the uh, people here who will not be followers of God. But at the end, he says in 2314, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He knows he's going to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one thing failed. That's why we can trust John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why our faith is built upon a promise like that. Because the one who's given the promise holds that promise and supports that promise. That's why you have faith. First of all, because of the promises of God. I mean, what happens if John had written, for God so loved the world that maybe, sort of, partially, whoever believes in his son may have eternal life. There's no promise there. And we would still be wondering, am I a follower of Christ? Am I a Christian? But the promises of God give us certainty and surety. And quite frankly, your conscience tells you this. Remember when you found out when you were a kid that your parents lied to you? May have been something small. May have been something like the big guy in the red suit who comes in December. Or recently, the bunny that hops around and lays eggs. What? <laughs> and all of a sudden you realize, that's not true. You go, Mom, Dad, you lied to me. And at least consciously you know that's not right. You shouldn't do that. Gee, Mom, Dad, can we go to the zoo? Yeah, we'll go to the zoo. We'll go to the zoo this afternoon. Oh, son, that's too bad. Something came up and I can't take you to the zoo. Dad, you lied to me. See, they know that. We know that. We know we, like, we love people who tell us the truth and don't suppress the truth to us. For instance, two weeks ago I gave you an outline. I gave you an outline partly written from a book that I've read, and I gave the author as E.J. Young. E.J. Young is an Old Testament scholar. The author of the book I gave you is Kevin D. Young. And in the stupor in which I was writing that, I mixed them up. And I lied to you, but I'm going to set it straight. So you go back to that outline this afternoon, and you write out, cross out E.J. Young and put Kevin D. Young. And you say, why, what a good boy am I. <laughs> now, that's the, the, uh, the background of this. And that's the, the portrait of God that you have. He's a God who always tells the truth. Even if you don't like it, he tells you the truth. Then there comes the prohibition. Overall, the prohibition says we are prone to fudge on the truth and thereby hurt others and ourselves, and we must curb that action. We must work real hard to tell us what's true. 
And then we find out what it means to curb that action. You shall never give false testimony. The phrase, you shall not bear false witness, is a court phrase. It's when you go into a court and they have you put your hand on the Bible, if they still do that, I don't know. Raise your other hand, say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And you say, yes. And then you tell a lie. And all of a sudden, you're in perjury, which is a criminal offense. You can go to jail for doing that. It may have been innocent. I forgot. I didn't know. I didn't remember the whole thing. But you've given false testimony. Or false testimony can be to think too highly or too low of who you are. Not a sober judgment. Humility is knowing who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses, and living within those strengths and weaknesses. To think, I am the greatest teacher that there is today in the whole church. That's a lie. I am the worst teacher there is in the whole church. That may be true. <laughs> but it's probably, I've heard some others, and I probably am not. But I know where the, the, the balance lays. Flattery. Why don't you look lovely today? Oh. <laughs> that dress is so becoming. It's becoming odious. That's what it's becoming. <laughs> Flattery is a form of not telling the truth. And so you, sometimes you have to be careful. It's like the wife that comes to the husband and says, do you like this dress on me, honey? And he knows he's in trouble no matter how he answers it. <laughs> But he's got to figure out a way to do it. Flattery is a way of false testimony. Half-truths. To tell only a part where forgetting the, the rest. I have been, I've been in the pastorate 45 years. I usually stand at the back door after service and shake people's hands. And I have people who come through and say, that was a great sermon, Pastor. And I'm always prone to ask them, what was so great about it? And this look will come on their face, I don't know, but that's what you say. Or we do it all the time. We go up to each other and we say, how are you doing today? Fine, good. And I look at them and say, you liar. I know your life is falling apart and you're having problems. It's not fine. It's not good. It's horrible. Why don't you tell the truth? Because we don't want to get into that. Well, in some sense, it's always fine. Because if you're a follower of Christ, your life is hidden in Him, and it's great. It's wonderful. But the experiences that you're going through may not be fine at all. Ultimately, they are fine because every experience you go through is an experience that helps you to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone. But at that moment, you don't feel fine at all. I mean, we got people who are suffering from the pollen count. Not the count, the pollen. And they'll go, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. <laughs> Sniffle, sniffle, blow their nose. That's false testimony. And we have to curb that. Twist no one's words. 
That means to align someone, to spin our words or others' words carefully, to conceal, excuse, or rationalize. That's a form of deception. I figured this out. Most of the news channels would have to stop broadcasting if they followed that commandment, do not lie. Because most of them, if maybe not all of them, spin the truth into their way. Most of the columnists would have to stop writing because they spin the truth in the way. Most of the politicians would have to go home. Wouldn't that be great? Because they spin the truth and they're being deceptive. And it takes a long time before the truth comes out. It will come out. Psalm, or, yeah, Psalm 15, 2 to, 13, 2 to 3, that talks about who can come into the presence of the Lord. says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. You know, we can, we can take a story and retell it so we look good and the other person looks bad. We can emphasize something nasty in another person and not ourselves. And all of that is to twist one's words or somebody else's words. Along with that is not gospel or slander. Oh man, I went from teaching to meddling right here. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Did you enjoy a meal last night if you were at the wedding? They're like delicious morsels. The words of a whisper. They go down and you kind of salivate and go, oh, that's delicious to hear about that person. And it goes down into the inner parts of who you are. Proverbs 13.5, the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. See, gossip is passing on a rumor about someone that cannot be substantiated. It's allowing people to believe it. It's to report, pass on a report unnecessarily. Uh, this is one of the issues I have with prayer meetings. Because usually in prayer meetings, we say, what, do you pr what prayer request do you have? Well, I want you to pray for Uncle Charlie because Uncle Charlie is going through... And all they're doing is gossiping about Uncle Charlie. I'd rather do away with asking and say, okay, when it comes time to pray and there's a pause, you ask your request. But simply ask us to say... Lord, I'm praying for my Uncle Charlie and you know what's going on. Because it becomes gossip. Or it becomes slander. A malicious statement about someone else. And the difference between slander and libel is libel is in writing. Slander is simply spoken. It's to tell a false statement that damages another person. Normally when you get to that point, we have to think of two questions. Would that person appreciate others knowing this about him or her? Do they really want this to go out? And second of all, do I do this to make other persons like me more? 
Because much of gossip and slandering is simply to make me look good and the other person look bad. You'll like me if you realize what a good guy I really am. I've told you before, my nickname when I was growing up was Georgie Goody Two-Shoes. And the Lord had to cure me of that real quick. In fact, that was part of my process of coming to him. Because they could call me Georgie Goody Two-Shoes, which is a real compliment. And I said, no, I know the darkness of my heart. I know the things that drive me. I know the things that I want to do that I'm afraid to do because if I do it, I'll get in trouble. I know how horrible the darkness. And as the Lord showed that to me, he says, I'm not Georgie Goody Two-Shoes. I'm Andy Horrible Sandals. It's just not there. It's not real. But you see, flattery, gossip, slander, that's all that it does. I don't like Facebook. I do because I get to know what's going on with my kids. But you notice how much of Facebook is really slander? Because it's in print libel or gossip about what takes place. I sometimes think maybe we ought to just get rid of Facebook. Except then I wouldn't know what my grandkids are doing. Next, it's not nor join in condemning anyone with a hearing without a hearing or without a just cause. Remember that old phrase, you should have learned it. You are innocent until proven guilty. And we've turned that around. Most people feel they're guilty until they have to prove themselves innocent. That's not biblical. You are innocent until you're proven guilty. Exodus 23, 1 to 3, you shall not spread a false rumor. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Almost sounds like James 2. When a rich man and a poor man come in, you give preference to the rich man. Please sit up here on the honored seat. And the poor man has to sit way in the back corner. Again, that's in a form of lying. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Rather, it's the, the uh, confession catechism says, in court and anywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of any kind. These are devices the devil himself uses, and they would call down on me God's intense anger. When we act this way, the confession says, we are acting like the devil. The devil is a liar. That's what Jesus said. You are of your father, the devil. And he was talking to the religious leaders of his day. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. It has nothing to do with the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of liars. There's a malice. There's a plan of revolt. And there's a plan of denigrating people that the enemy has. 
And when we bear false witness, we are acting just like him. When Paul said at the end of the passage I read, be imitators of God. Do not give the devil a foothold. And he put that in the, in the, the uh, context of telling the truth, not being angry. Do not give no opportunity to the devil. That's what it is. One of my, my great examples of this comes from 1 Kings 21, 1-16. It's called Naboth's Vineyard. Ahab wants a vineyard that is right next to his palace. He looks at it as, man, it's a beautiful vineyard, and he wants it. And he goes to Naboth and says, sell me your vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't. It's my family property. I, I'm not allowed to sell it to you. And so Ahab, in all of his glory and wonder, goes home, crawls on his bed, rolls up into a fetal position, sticks his thumb in his mouth, turns towards the wall, and he just begins to pout. He won't give me my the vineyard. He won't give me. Well, Jezebel, the queen, comes in and says, oh, don't worry, I'll get her for you. She calls a banquet. And Naboth is included in the banquet. Now, who wouldn't want to go to the king's banquet? Well, across the table from him, she put two worthless people. And during the table, during the meal, they looked at him and said, Naboth blasphemed God! And they stoned him for it. And the king got Naboth's vineyard. That's what the commandment is talking about. Not bearing false witness. Acting that way. Why do we do this? I think you already know some way, but it, it, it's embarrassing to say you were wrong. It makes you look bad. Our pride comes in the way of it, if we allow it. it says, I, I can't tell anybody that. They, oh, man, what would they think of me? I mean, they may smile at me now, but when they go home, they're going to go, bleh. It's selfish. I want my way. It's out of fear. Fear of what people will think or scared of what may happen if I actually have to tell the truth. Yes, ma'am, that's an ugly dress. <laughs> well, there goes that person wanting to like me. Or it's simply out of revenge. This person did this to me. I am going to get them and I'm going to get them good by telling a lie. It's all to make us look good. And it makes somebody else look horrible. Then the catechism goes into the prescription. We should love the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, which we heard yesterday. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Not simply good doctrine. It does that. But it rejoices with what is real, what is and what is true about life, it rejoices. It rejoices about what's true in another person. Because God has created us the way we are. And he has created us with strengths and weaknesses. And he said, this is good. Because you fit in to the total picture of doing what I need to have done. Because you're acting this way and because of who you are. 
and because you make the whole better. And love looks at it and says, their strengths and weaknesses are part of what we need. Or Matthew 5.37, where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is talking about, he's actually talking about this ninth commandment about giving oaths in a court of law. But he ends by saying this, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Which is actually what he's saying. Just don't lie. Let it either be yes or no. Why do you have to elaborate? That's a good thought. Why do you have to elaborate on some things? Tear down someone? Make yourself look good? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Same, so, similar to what James 4 and James 4 said. Instead of you ought to say, if the Lord wills, he, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast of, in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. That's why I like that little phrase. Lord willing, we will finish the commandments next week. Lord willing, we'll finish the catechism by June 30th. That's speaking the truth. Speak the truth candidly, it says. Ephesians, from the Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Remember how he puts that? We are members one another. We are in this conglomerate. We are in this congregation. We are in this together. Speak the truth in love. Why? Because not speaking the truth in love causes fractures. It causes pain. It causes division where there need not be any division. Where Paul said in the beginning of the fourth chapter, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The rest of his book is basically amplifying how you do that. And one of them is speak the truth to one another. Stand for the truth. Speak it only. No matter the outcome. That's the problem with standing for the truth. Because the outcome may not be pleasant. When you say something that's true, people, it may hurt people or it may alienate people. But it is the truth. It's what's real. Speak sincerely. Telling the truth may get you into a world of hot water. But if hot water is where you're meant to be telling the truth, then allow it to boil out the lies. That's what it's called to do. Openly acknowledge the truth. 1 Peter 3, 8-9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You know, think about that, and, and Peter, I think, is thinking about this when he wrote it. Think of the actions of Jesus. He could have called down legions of angels against any of his detractors at his trial. But he knew the truth. I have to go to the cross. I was born for just this. And therefore he did not do it. He didn't revile. He blessed. I think some of the th hard things he said to Pilate and to Herod 
were really blessings in disguise because it was to meant them to show, you know what you're doing here, right? This is what you're doing. And although it wouldn't change the pattern, because that pattern could not be changed, it would at least awaken within individuals what's taking place in their heart. That's the scalpel of the Word of God. Rather than, than talking in, in, in uh, evil or reviling, James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the way our language should be with one another. And lastly, to do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. A good name is to be chosen. And that's not only for ourselves, but it is best, especially how we relate to others. How in the world do we let others know and guard and advance our neighbor's good name? To have charitable regard. To give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't know about you, how often have you heard something about somebody else and then all of a sudden you're, you're either you've already told somebody else or you're about to and you hear the real story, the true story. And I said, I wish I had spent more time giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's not what they said. That's not what they meant. That's not what they wanted to do. But we have in our devilish old nature just a propensity to want to get at people. And it shows the weakness of our own lives, of our own hearts. In short, what this catechism is saying is what James tells us in his third chapter. Guard the use of your tongue and bring it under submission. You know, if Jesus said in adultery, cut, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. If you're a liar, cut out your tongue. Not literally. But realize you ought to go to that extent in order to keep from lying. Whereas Paul said to the Colossians, let your speech always be gracious, reasoned with, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I've eaten some meals I got halfway through said, I should have put salt on that. It would make it a whole lot better meal. I'm not alone in it, right? <laughs> Should have put some pepper on it. it would, the seasoning would be... Yeah. Well, how? figure out how you can talk with a conversation that's seasoned with something that's preservative, something that gives, gives flavor. See, that's the prescription that this is getting to. And again, I will tell you, because we are so prone to do this, we fall back upon God's unmerited favor. That he is a God who forgives us in Christ 
That's part of the rebirth by the Spirit. He is a God who empowers us by the Spirit so that we can indeed temper our tongue and we can be one who speaks with seasoned conversation. So, your work this week, if you decide to take it, Mission Impossible, is to go out and learn how to curb your tongue. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that even the tongue is underneath your control. And by granting to us the power of the Spirit, you can help us to say what is true and what is real, what is right. That you can be people who talk in peace, full of mercy and good fruits, impartially and sincere. That we can be people who benefit others and build them up, not tear them down. Take your sword, the scalpel. Cut real deep, O oh Lord, because you need to go between the the bone and the marrow and separate and show us how then we ought to live for you. It's our desire, O oh Lord, because it's our desire to follow you, to glorify you, to exalt you in all that we say and do. And we ask it for your honor and glory and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, amen.